into verse 21. Just the first portion of verse 21. Acts 5, beginning in verse 11. This is soon after the great judgment that came upon um, Sapphira and Ananias. Verse 11 we read, And great fear came upon all the church, and upon as many as heard these things. And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people, and they were all with one accord in Solomon's porch, and the rest durst not, no man join himself, dared no man join himself to them. But the people magnified them. And believers were the more added to the Lord, multitudes, both men and women, insomuch that they brought forth the sick unto the streets and laid them on beds and couches, that at the least the shadow of Peter passing by might overshadow some of them. There came also a multitude out of the cities round about unto Jerusalem, bringing sick folks, and them which were vexed with unclean spirits, and they were healed, every one. Then the high priest rose up, and all they that were with him, which is the sect of the Sadducees, and were filled with indignation, and laid their hands on the apostles, and put them in the common prison. But the angel of the Lord by night opened the prison doors and brought them forth and said, Go, stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. Thus far the reading of God's holy word. Congregation, as we return our attention to to Acts chapter 5, we we find the church and the people surrounding the church, people who are evaluating and thinking things about the church. There's, There's this great range of emotions and feelings and evaluations. What I mean by evaluations is people people are judging the church and, and thinking something about it. And these are all the different things that, that we can count and all that we have read. There's, there's great fear even upon all the church and great fear upon as many as heard these things. Luke is referring especially to what happened to Ananias and Sapphira and, and certainly the rest of the message that the apostles were, were delivering. It, it brought fear to the hearts of the people. You can think to the hearts of believers. It is a fear that is centered in awe and wonder. And to the hearts of unbelievers, it is a fear that could be considered dread and being afraid. It says that none dare to join them, and yet the people magnified them. Believers were added to them, multitudes of both men and women. People came for help. They were desirous of the cures and deliverances. And yet, the last portion we read, we see the animosity of the religious leaders, the jealousy, the anger, and even hatred. 
If I, if I single out the emotions, there is fear, there is dread, there is curiosity, there is admiration, there is faith, there is a sense of need. I, I need what they have. There is a sense of anger and jealousy. I say jealousy because the word in verse 17 that the Sadducees were filled with indignation. That is the word for jealousy. They were filled with envy. Now, what do we learn from, from all of these attitudes and feelings and emotions and, and reactions to what was happening regarding the newborn church of the Lord Jesus Christ? Well, we can, we can separate it into two thoughts, the, the growth of the church and also the mission of the church. And under those two headings, we will learn um, many lessons, many things that we are to take to heart regarding the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, this is about the church and what's happening to the church. And it is, of course, all about what God is doing to the church and what God is commanding the church to do, enabling the church to do, and commanding the church to do while He's protecting the church to do it. And so, first of all, we'll look at the growth of the church. And we have, we have three main lessons here. Not, not really lessons, but explanations of how the church was growing. Like, what was it that was enabling the church to grow um, in the midst of, of all these different attitudes and emotions? And the first thing we could say is that the church was born out of prayer. This growth of the church was intricately connected to prayer. And a very specific kind of prayer, it is corporate prayer. Um, I mentioned this in in another sermon as we, we saw verse 12, but I do believe this is important enough to look at again with, with a fresh consideration as just this little sub-point under our first point, the growth of the church is intricately connected to corporate prayer. It is, it is not in a coincidence that Luke uses the word signs and wonders were wrought in verse 12. That, that is precisely the phrase that was used in their prayer. In chapter 4, um, that's when at the very end, tr- towards the end of chapter 4, in verse um, 29, let me just read their prayer. There are two verses, verse 29 of chapter 4. And now, Lord, the first request, behold their threatenings. That's asking for protection. Number two, grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word. That's asking for courage that they would continue to proclaim the word. In verse 30, they're asking how this boldness would would be shown. By stretching forth thine hand to heal, and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child Jesus. So they ask that signs and wonders would be done. And in verse 12 of chapter 5, we read, And by the hands of the apostles were many signs and wonders wrought among the people. 
And then we read what these signs and wonders are, where all these people are being healed, that they're lining them up out in the streets, where the, the very shadow of Peter may pass over them, and they have the hope that they may be healed. And then I just read the very beginning of the new imprisonment and the deliverance. The very first night they are there, an angel opened the doors, and they go back to the temple to preach. And, and, and we have the answer to their prayer. They are being protected. They are proclaiming boldly the word of God. And they are operating signs and wonders by the power of God. God wants us to see that they prayed and there's an answer. God is a prayer hearing and a prayer answering God. And, and this should revive in our hearts the trust and the belief that when we come together to pray... We can believe that God will answer those prayers. Everything that is, of course, in accordance to His will, He will answer. But it's, it's impactful to think that it is according to His will that we join together to pray. Yes, there's a part to pray as families and to pray individually. But the birth of the church starts where corporate prayer is front and center. And, and I emphasize this because it is common that we do hear from people, from Christians, who, who want to understand why, why, why do we have a prayer meeting? Where in the Bible does it say that we need to do this? Why does it have to be on the middle of the week? And we, we never are saying that it has to be Wednesday. There are churches that have it on Thursday. There are churches who have a Tuesday night prayer meeting. I've heard of churches that will have a prayer meeting the only day that is feasible because most people live very far from the congregation. And since they come Sundays, they end up having a prayer meeting after a lunch together before they go back to a service or a prayer meeting at night on a Lord's Day. It's true that God's Word doesn't say and doesn't prescribe when prayer meetings should be held. But we need to understand, and this is why churches have held prayer meetings, at least churches that are sensitive to God's Word, they see that prayer meetings was, was like a heartbeat of the heart of the church, and it becomes their heartbeat as well. And, and it even follows that principle that is similar to that of the Lord's Day, and the principle that's there regarding our offering. God does not say how much. And in the law, in the midst of all those commands, like in terms of offerings, God never says how much. He never establishes in the New Testament. It's true in the Old, it was quite established, the 10%. But in the Old, there's this principle where we are to give out of the generosity of our heart. God doesn't want a single Christian feeling forced that he has to give so much. Because it's, the moment you do it that way, you're really not giving. It is not how God receives our obedience. He wants it out of love, out of affection, out of gratitude. And then you notice that regarding the Lord's Day, all the commands, thou shalt not, thou shalt not. The Lord's Day is remember the Lord's Day. God sends his, this command for the Lord's Day is sent forth as an invitation showing what a blessing it is that you would set everything apart and come to church to worship Him. But again, for the believer who's here just thinking, oh, I guess I have to do this, or else they're going to judge me, or else I might not be blessed, that is not keeping the Lord's day. He wants your heart. 
as you worship Him, as you go to your home and you're there just thinking, what, what are the things I could do that would, would edify my family, edify my heart spiritually, maybe edify others, and use the Lord's Day for that. The Bible doesn't give those specific prescriptions and, and like a, a command that you have to do this or else because God wants it to be out of your heart. And the same thing follows with, with all that we're talking about in terms of prayer. God does not delineate that Wednesday night has to be the night for prayer or Tuesday night. or No, it, it has to come out of our hearts. It has to come out of our desire, our yearning, our understanding that this is something God uses and blesses. And we see it happening. They prayed and they were answered. They received an answer. And the church is growing. So the church grew. It was born out of prayer. And then we could say, secondly, it was born out of power. God was manifesting His power. Um, what was being fulfilled before their eyes were the words of Jesus, that greater works than these shall you do. It's not that they have more power than Jesus had, absolutely. But it's really the power of Jesus being shown even more amply. During the life of Jesus, there weren't multitudes who were believing like this. We are literally at the tens of thousands now who are confessing Christ and who seem to be true believers. And all of these healings in this way, we, we never saw this intensity in the life of Jesus. But Jesus professed and, and, and prophesied that this would happen. And it's happening right now. It's God showing His power. And, and, and it, it all is focusing upon God because this is a proof that what these apostles are doing are what Jesus is continuing to do. It is a proof that He's alive. You, we, we've talked about this Acts. You get the sense that Jesus is still there. Pretty soon you're going to hear about Him because it looks like He's here in all of these activities and all of this operation of power. We see that Jesus is not dead. He truly arose from the grave. He is reigning upon this world. This is the ministry of Christ among us. And that, and that power beloved this is what's so precious to think of these truths the spirit is still with us the the, the church is now 2,000 years from these very days that we're reading in the scripture but we still have the same spirit with us the Lord Jesus is still ruling in heaven and he still shows his power upon this earth and so it was born out of power and thirdly we could say it was born out of love and again, I know that I talked a little bit about the love of the disciples when they're sharing all their things and selling their lands and, and giving to the apostles. All of that was love. But, but I want to just put it here in a, in a short note because it's these three things. It is prayer, power, and love. Now, the power comes from God. He's the one who does what needs to be done. But they were being used as vessels for that to happen. And, and the prayer was where they were acknowledging their dependence completely on the Lord. And now this love that they show and that they're willing to cure people, to heal people. They are selling things to care for people. And they are giving to these people 
the message that mattered most. They were teaching these souls how they could live forever, how eternal life could be received. And that is the greatest manifestation of love you and I, a a human, could ever give to another. There, There is no greater way to show our love than to give the message of Christ, which is, as we will see, what the angel summarizes about Christianity. He says it's the words of this life. That's why the theme of this sermon is the words of this life. It's, it's very emphatic to think we have in our text a little, a little phrase, a little sentence or so of an angel. It is a command that he gives. We will look at that command mainly in our second point. But just think for a moment, everything they've been doing, they've been, they've been declaring that Jesus is the Messiah, that the Messiah was supposed to die, and they are declaring that he arose from the grave. They are declaring that if they believe in Jesus, their sins will be forgiven. They declared at those people who said, what must we do to be saved? And and Peter said that they needed to repent and be baptized. So all of this message of repentance, of baptism, of sins being forgiven, that Jesus is resurrected, the angel summarizes with this phrase, the words of this life. And when you and I share the gospel, we are giving them the words of this life. There's nothing that can show more love. You can even be a doctor and heal someone from a disease, but if they don't believe in Jesus and know who Jesus is, that life will only be temporary. It'll pass. Healing only goes so far in showing love to people. The gospel goes to eternity in loving people. And this is what they were doing. They were showing the love of Christ by teaching people about Christ. And Matthew Henry gives this little result of of this infusion of love to that society. And beloved, the, the church of Christ ever since those days have done exactly this. The true body of Christ has understood our mission in this world is to show the message of Christ and the love of Christ because it's indivisible. If you truly understand this summons of of declaring to this world the words of this life, it'll have love wrapped all around it. And look what Matthew Henry says. All the people magnified them. Remember, we we saw that that magnified meant that people were, were praising the church and had them in great veneration. They spoke of them with respect and represented them as favorites of heaven and unspeakable blessings to this earth. Though the chief priests vilified them and did all they could to make them contemptible, this did not hinder the people from magnifying them who saw the thing in a true light. Observe, the apostles were far from magnifying themselves. They transmitted the glory of all they did very carefully and faithfully to Christ. And yet the people magnified them for those that humble themselves shall be exalted and those honored that honor God only. So see that, that love that they were showing um, with, with the message of Christ being the central um, gemstone 
was causing in the hearts of people to be mesmerized. And they thought, we, we need to acknowledge there's something special about the, this people, this message that they give, that they have. They, they heal those who are sick. They deliver those who are possessed. They provide for those who are very poor. They speak of salvation. They speak of forgiveness. They speak of resurrection from the dead. They speak of heaven. They speak of escaping hell. They are providing for, they're providing hope for sinners. They're providing hope for the poor. They're not forgetting the poor, the neglected, the unwanted in society. Think of this reality, beloved. People who have this power power to heal those miracles that they were doing was otherworldly. And you can imagine, earthly speaking, worldly speaking, how that could get to the head of some people and think, if this is what I can do, well, I'll go on to greater things. And they would probably forget the poor if that's all they had is in their minds a sense of, of the power that they had. They could so easily forget the poor. And we know this for a fact because it has happened. And the church has been so caught with its glories in certain times in history that they have literally forgotten the poor. Beloved, I have heard from professing believers when it's been suggested to go to certain places to minister because there are poor people. I have heard Christians say, well, but then it's poor people who will come to church. When you hear a person speak that way, that person is saying, I know nothing of Christianity. That's why when Paul went in his ministry, they told him, don't forget the poor. And when he comes back to report on his ministry, he says, I didn't forget the poor. Because, beloved, we have a message of life and hope. We know the truth. And, and it is a powerful possession. And the church has lost itself in its power and in its pomp and in its pride, and it does forget the poor and the unwanted. When we do that, we're no longer really the church. We're not acting as a church. These men had power unparalleled in certain times of the church because they could deliver demons, they could heal the sick, and they kept remembering the poor. Beloved, this, this love, see, is, is really the essence of their power. It, it is really, in a sense, more powerful to see that. Well, the power to healing had nothing to do with them. It was directly from God. All they had to do was, was in, in a sense, pass by there in, in his shade. Seems like the very shade would do something. At least they had the hope that it would. It, it clearly says that they were healed, every one. But, beloved, that, that had nothing to do, in a sense, with the character of Peter, with the heart of Peter. It was a power that was clearly used through him and passed on to heal these people. But the love that Peter and all the apostles would show, looking at someone poor and saying, we will take care of you. It, it was the fruit of the Spirit that had to pass, yes, also from the Spirit into their heart, but they had to be, in a sense, the hands and the feet of Christ in showing that love. So I think it's really important to understand that even, even though the church grew out of power, it grew out of love. And, and, 
And I always want to encourage congregation, that is, that is what we have. If you're a true believer, you have love. Love is the fruit of the Spirit. And, and it's encouraging to think what love can do in this world that is so unloving. But if you're a true believer, you can have this love, this sacrificial love. And I submit to you that that is the power now that the church of Christ has. is the message of the Lord Jesus Christ where we can deliver it with the hands of the Lord Jesus Christ who will truly care for those who are unwanted in this world and who are needing care, who are needing love. And so just two, two conclusions before we go to our second point. We see that love is an effective way by which we show forth the power, truth, and love of God. When we love as these disciples and apostles were loving, we will be, in a sense, showing the word of Christ that we are proclaiming and the very love of Christ that we are enacting. See, the the deeds ministry was never central, as we will see that was the word. In our second point, we will see how, how there's an order here. The word always is primary. That's what the angel reminds them of. It's emphatic to think the angel doesn't say, go back and continue healing everybody. No, he says, go to the people and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. He's giving them a priority to their ministry. So we learn this, that that the deeds ministry, as much as I speak about love, I want to bring this balance, but you need to understand how how it works together. It's, It's not central, but it's powerful. And it does these three things. When you love people, when you provide for them what they need in a genuine way, these three things will happen. It's very practical, very, very simple. What was it doing to them? It was bringing people near to hear the word. It was making them interested in the word. It was making them curious to hear the word. Sometimes Christians say, you know, if we give those things, it's just going to make people want things. But we need to understand that there's a difference between just carelessly spoiling people or intentionally loving people. And if they come because they're interested in what we can give and trusting us with the message we have, we have the hope of an opportunity to sow the seed. And Jesus taught us very well that the growth of that seed is completely out of our control. But we need to sow. And when you show love, people will come to hear of Christ. People will have their ears attuned. You've gained their respect because you love them and you care. And they're interested in what you might say. They'll even ask questions of of, of your message. And they'll be affected by the word and be converted by the word. As many as God intends to convert. You'll remember that example that I gave about Robert Raid Cayley, who was a Scottish 
um, doctor who went to the island of Madeira, when he realized that the people, he first thought, well, I'm a doctor, I'll help some of these people, he started realizing they knew nothing of the scriptures, even though they were from the Roman Catholic background. Then they realized they, they didn't know how to read. Many of them were illiterate. So he thought, well, they need literacy and they need the Bible. So he started literacy schools. And remember, they're, 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 it got to a point where there were around 2,000 who had to flee Madeira when the persecution began. When William Carey went to India, he saw that the children needed schools. And so he started schools to educate them, to train them. And he gave the gospel. We see that method being blessed by God from age to age. These people needed healing. They needed deliverance from devils. God gave them the gift to do that. They were giving to the people what they needed. And it made people come. The second thing that all of that love was doing is it was giving credence to the word. It was, it was showing a proof that what they had to say was true because they were living it through their love and through their lives. They were seeing that these powerful men were taking time with the sick and demon-possessed people. And, and stop to think of it, it's, it's not a pleasurable thing. We, we saw some of those events where Jesus meets where people who are possessed, it's, it's, it's hard, it's difficult, it's, it's sad. You see how they are in, in, their, in their suffering, in their affliction. But they were there, they stuck with it, they were showing love to them. So it, it gave credence to the word. And then thirdly, which is the most basic and simple reality, all they were doing was providing what the people needed, materially and spiritually. The material possessions, uh, the material needs were by the, by the provisions that they were giving, the healings and deliverances, and the, and the spiritual need by the proclaiming the Lord Jesus as their Lord, as the only Savior of sinners. And so that about love. And a second and last conclusion here, the prayer and the power and the love that God used to grow the church were, were used of the Lord to bring really what we could call even not, not just a growth of the church, it was a true revival. This, this event had the marks of what a true revival is. In that Pentecost day, in the moment of the coming of the Spirit, that is non-repeatable. It was, it was when the Spirit came first in answer to the prayer of the Lord Jesus Christ. But throughout the history of the church, there have been moments like these where God has been pleased to, to show His favor to his church with, with these marks. Look what was happening. There was a sense of God's powerful presence. There was a love for and a response to the Word of God. The Word of God is central in, in all that we're seeing because of the message that they were giving. Um, they were desiring true worship of God. We always see moments that it says that they were resorting to the teachings of the apostles and breaking of bread, and, and, and they're, they're just worshiping God. There's a deep sensitivity to sin and its great evil, because remember, this is, 
this is central to the message that they are giving is that Jesus died for sinners, that, that, that it was their sin that made them crucify Jesus, and they needed to repent of that. So the message of the apostles had sin as part of what they were communicating. And this is what happens in revivals. There are churches who say, let's stop talking about sin. It will make people leave. But revival makes people come even while we're talking about sin. There was a, a zeal for loving one another in meaningful fellowship. That's what happens in revival. A, a great and renewed love for one another and for others beyond the church. There was a yearning for prayer and a great dependence of God. They, they met together because they knew they needed to come together to God. They depended on Him. And there was an interest in evangelism. And there were many genuine conversions that followed. That's a revival. That was happening. So that regarding the growth of the church. And now let's go to our second point, the mission of the church. And the reason we call it the mission of the church is as we enter, we're just going to enter this new arrest. Just these few verses that we read. Let me, let me go to the narrative first, a little bit about the narrative. So, boys and girls, you, you see what happened. The apostles are once again put in prison. It, it'll be the second time for Peter and for, for, for John. But now it says um, a, a plurality. It says, and laid their hands on the apostles. It's very possible that all 12 apostles were identified as the leaders and put now in prison. They are arrested, it says, by the Sadducees. And, and you'll remember the Sadducees were the liberal faction of, of the day. The word sect that, that is in the Bible to describe them, which is the sect of the Sadducees, it's a word that means faction, the, the school of thought, you could say. Um, the party, it was the liberal party. Um, listen to Calvin's descriptions of the Sadducees. Very, very, um, very blunt. He says, They are so addicted to the ways of this world that they think that man's chief happiness is to live as he pleases and that God's children have no other heritage than to exist here like pigs at a trough. That was what the Sadducees believed. And that is what constituted the faction among Jews at that time. Because remember, they didn't believe in the resurrection. And they didn't believe in angels. They didn't believe in the spiritual world. They, they, were, very, they were like the secularists of the religious day. And so they really just thought this was the life that we live. And we make the best of it. That's why they were very um, greedy for gain. Because they try to make this world their heaven. Spurgeon says this, they, they were liberal to everybody except to those who hold the truth. And for those, they have a reserve of concentrated bitterness which far excels wormwood and gall. Have you noticed that that's, that's the universal truth about the liberal-minded person? They, they are called liberal, but they really aren't. Because when it comes to someone who, who has fixed beliefs in God and wanting to obey who God is, and we're not imposing it in any way, but we do want to share it with everyone because it's the truth. But they don't tolerate that. 
they're not liberal in a universal way. They're liberal, but not to everybody, only to those who, in a sense, agree with them. And they were full of jealousy, it says. They were full of indignation, filled with indignation. And, and that means jealousy. Now, a word about jealousy here. Um, jealousy comes from zeal. And the word here for, for jealous is also the word for zeal. There is a zeal that is good. There is a zeal that is bad. When it's bad, it's, it's like this. But the word jealous and zeal could be used together. This is why we hear of God being spoken of. He himself says he's a jealous God. See, when you are zeal, zealous in the right direction, it is a virtue. It is a, a passionate desire for something good, like for purity, like to see God honored. That's when a Christian can be jealous. That's how Jesus had a zeal for his father's house. He wanted it pure. So that, that's the right kind of zeal. That's the right kind of jealousy. Um, the right zeal protects, it defends, it promotes um, and loves the needy, the defenseless, the unwanted. You'll, you'll find churches being very jealous of, of those who are not being taken care of and they will make sure they take care of them. That's a beautiful and needful um, virtue. But when this zeal is misplaced and it's selfish then it's evil. And that's the kind of jealousy that is a sinful jealousy. It's an anger that others were blessed more than I was. It's the greed for a greater reward that someone else received. So not only the sadness that you didn't receive it, but you're even angry because they did. That's jealousy. When you want that for yourself, it shows the greed and jealousy. That's, that's when we call it envy. You are envious of the one who got a greater reward, a greater compensation. You see how, how sinful it is because instead of rejoicing with those who rejoice, you're angry because they can rejoice. When you put together um, what a godly believer ought to do, you see someone glad, you are grateful that they are glad. You, they won a game, and, and maybe you lost it, but you, you have a joy that they can have the joy of winning. You know, boys and girls, that's, that's how a Christian is commanded to live. You see someone happy, and you think, wow, I, I know how the feeling of happiness is, how good that that person can be happy. I'm happy for them. So you're no longer jealous. When you live a selfless and sacrificial life, you're, you want everyone to be rewarded. You want everyone to get that job. And maybe you didn't get it, but you're happy that he did. That person got a raise. I didn't, but I'm happy that he did. That's what Christianity is. But these, these Sadducees were competing. They were church leaders, and these apostles have a church message. It is a spiritual realm along with the Sadducees, and they see them as competition. They're not interested that people are even being healed. You think of it, if Sadducees had a spiritual kind of leadership, they should be overjoyed that these people who had been molested by demons are now being delivered. But instead... 
they are jealous. And it showed that they had absolutely no concern for the people. They have only concern for themselves. So a word here about the jealousy of these, of these um, Sadducees. And let it be, beloved, a, a great application to your heart. The true believers are to be zealous for what is right. And thankful when others are blessed. But these Sadducees are taken by that jealousy. They, they, they now even risked the anger of the people and went there and arrested them. Because remember, they were a little scared of being too negative in front of the people. Because the people were liking what the apostles were doing. But they even risked all of that, held them. It says they, they laid their hands on the apostles, put them in the common prison. So they left them overnight. They, they are planning to call the Sanhedrin the next day. Think of what's happening. They were with high hopes that they condemned these men. And, and who are these men? Who are the Sanhedrin? These are the very same people, the court that ordered the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. So in the hearts of these Sadducees, they probably think, we got rid of the leader. They continue the message. We need to just get rid of these messengers. And then everything will be well. That was their plan. Until the cell was empty. And that whole reality of the cell empty and what will follow, Lord willing, in another sermon we'll consider. But let's just go to the deliverance itself and then the, the main messages that we get regarding the mission of the church. So still in terms of the narrative, there's this deliverance. This angel comes of the Lord by night. He opened the prison doors. So it's not just one, but perhaps a couple or more, and brought them forth. And later we will read that there are sentries, there are soldiers who were there at those doors. We don't read anything about them now. It, very likely they were, they were completely asleep or they weren't there in that very given moment. It was a miracle. This angel had the power to make it where not a single human could avoid this escape. This is an escape from prison. This, this will be one in a series in the book of Acts of three escapes. Um, this is the first, and it was the plurality of the apostles. It's possibly all 12. Um, you'll remember that the next escape will be in chapter 12, and Peter escapes all by himself because he's the only one in prison at that time. James had been killed um, just before by Herod. But remember, it was also an angel that, that gave the escape of Peter. And then the third escape will be that escape. Boys and girls, you'll remember that one. Remember when Paul and Silas are in Philippi and there's the earthquake. That's the third great escape from jail. We're at the first one right now. And, it, and it, it's related in, in like a matter-of-fact way. This is how things are with God. He sends an angel. He opens the doors. They're out. We need to remember, beloved, when we see the difficulties of our day, this is why depending upon God in prayer is so powerful. We're trusting that He can change hearts in just a blink of an eye. God can give one message that might go to the heart of one lost person, even today, even this sermon, the myriads of sermons that are being preached throughout this Lord's Day in all the many lands of the world where... where the word goes forth. God can use that word, pierce that heart, and you are saved. You are His. Nothing is impossible with God. So these apostles are in prison. 
This angel comes and delivers them. One, one author, Daryl Bach, he says this, this is the ultimate cosmic overrule of the Jewish leadership as a sovereign God acts to free the apostles, opening the doors of their prison. And notice the irony here. The Sadducees are the ruling sect that says there are no angels, and God sends an angel to open the doors of the people whom the Sadducees imprison. It's, it's God showing, isn't it, to that, those very Sadducees. The, the angels that you deny are the angels that I send to prove my purposes. Just like God used means that were referring to the very gods of Egypt to show Pharaoh that his gods were no gods. He sent Pharaoh before the Red Sea, and now he sent this angel before these Sadducees, and they're delivered. It's what Psalm 34, 7 says, The angel of the Lord encampeth round about them that fear him and delivers them. So this is the narrative. They're put in prison because of the jealousy of the Sadducees who don't believe there are angels. God sends an angel, opens the door, and now this message. All of this to bring this message. The message says, Go. Stand and speak in the temple to the people all the words of this life. That's all we hear of this angel. And what do they do? And when they heard that, they entered into the temple early in the morning and taught. They do precisely what the angel told them to do. And this is what we learn from all of this. There are three things. If, if, if I don't have time to all say all three I'll go as far as I can. The first one, God was showing the priority of the ministry. And the priority is the Word. We see the centrality of the gospel message, especially because verses 12 through 16 says nothing about preaching. It's all their activity in healing and delivering those who have evil spirits, how people were liking or not liking what they were doing, afraid or not afraid. And we see um, the Sadducees who are jealous. The angel comes and says, go and preach. And as important as it was to do the healing, as important as it was to provide for their means, to sell more property if they needed it, they're told to preach. And they're told to preach the words of this life. We, we saw this already. There's a lesson there that the summary of the gospel are the words of this life. And it's because life, in a sense, summarizes everything about the gospel. Every single doctrine leads to life. The doctrine of redemption is so that our lives are bought out of death. The doctrine of forgiveness is so that we are cleansed from sin whose wages are death. The doctrine of reconciliation is that we leave the realm of death and we are now in the realm of life with God. 
The doctrine of justification is that now we are declared righteous. We have life and no longer death. The doctrine of sanctification is that we, we, we go growing in this life in the likeness of Christ. We, we look more and more like those who have life because we're to be like Jesus who is the way, the truth, and the life. And we give the message of Jesus to people so that they will have life. And who is Jesus? He's the one who died but now is alive. It's, it's so precious and beautiful to think that the summary of Christianity is life. Remember Christian when he was running, when people were, were, were kind of telling him not to go and he just closed his ears and he said, life, life, eternal life. He just wanted life, and, the, and those sins were, were taking it from him, and he needed life. And he heard that going to that place, and, and where he found that light, where he would see the cross, he would have that life. That's who you are, believer. If you're, if you're a true believer, you have life. And we live in a world, every single unbeliever does not have life. They have the opposite of life, which is death. They have like the threat that death might come. And when it comes, it is eternal death. It is the second death. Beloved, it's so sobering to think that those who die in Christ, as hard as that death is, it's only the first one. Then they will eternally be dying in a sense. Because when their bodies too resurrect, their souls will come from the place that it was waiting for judgment. And that new resurrected body with that soul will die again. That's the second death. Every time, when you, when you preach the Word, you can't bring everything. But when I'm preaching about resurrection, it is in the back of my mind, the whole realm, the whole reality of resurrection unto death. Search for a sermon from Spurgeon where he preaches about resurrection unto death. Because the dead who died without Christ will also rise again. Their souls will also join that body, but they will die again. That's the second death. Beloved, see, we live on this, this side and we don't see all those things, but the Word comes and reminds us of all these realities. You saw the psalm that we were reading, that, that, that they will die like the beast. Man will die like the beast. And, and, and that means every one of us, but if you have Christ, that death is not the final word. There is eternal life. So our message is the message of the words of this life. This is what the angel reminds them and tells them to go and do. And it brings this priority, the priority of the word. So in all of our ministry of love, we need to realize there's a priority. And, and, and it's so beautiful because then we realize it's never that we just preach, preach, and we forget to love. As soon as we do that, our preaching won't be seen as true. But we preach and we preach and we preach and we love and we love and we love. And our love is in a sense like a foundation and like a rock that will prove that our preaching is true. Because we're loving, we're living our preaching. I see life and I'm interested in life. I want to protect life. I want to provide for there to be life. I want to promote life and I will preach about life. You see, it goes hand to hand. There's a priority, but there's a, 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 a joining, a combination. 
many Christians are afraid of the deeds part because they think it turns into the social gospel. Well, it's very simple. The social gospel is the love without the word. And even you could say if it's the, if it's the, the, the love and the word parallel, that's already wrong. The word always has a preeminence because it's the words of life. I can give food. It'll give life for two more years. But if that person doesn't have Christ, they'll die again. So we see the priority of the word. It gives eternal life. But it has to be connected with the love because that's also connected to life. And so we'll we'll bring some of the rest of the principles next time. I just want to end with this thought. The angel opened the doors and told them to go. And they had to go. Does, Does the thought come to your mind, why doesn't the angel go with them? Imagine how glorious. They're at the temple preaching. The Sadducees come. The angel comes right in between and says, hush, the sermon has to continue. And and the angel may be having a second and third and fourth point. And think of how glorious that would be. Talk about bringing people that would talk about how an angel showed up at the temple. But God does not give the angels that ministry. He gives it to you. And beloved, this is how you should see it. Just as these apostles are told to go to the people and speak the words of this life, this is what God has told to you and me. It is not angels who have this ministry. It is men and women and even little children, if you know the Lord Jesus, out of the mouth of babes can come forth praise. And you can tell others about Jesus. We will, we will continue with this thought. It's so profound. The privilege that you and I have that angels don't. We were created a little lower than the angels, but we have a privilege that is higher than the privileges that the angels have. And it's a, it's a precious thought to have that God has given us a work to do that angels long to look into. And they help. They open prison doors. And they give the good tidings of joy to the shepherds that a Savior was born. They tell Mary that she has the one who is the Son of God. The angels go so far. They declare that He resurrected. They declare that He ascended and He'll come back the same way He went. But they don't go out and preach. They don't go out and evangelize. They don't go door to door. They don't talk to your friends about Jesus. God sent that angel to tell the church to do that. And that is our ministry. That is our privilege. Amen. Let us pray. Our gracious and glorious God, we thank Thee for having sent that angel that day and delivering all those apostles, even though they are arrested the very next day. We learn so much, Lord, from from this message of the angels to the apostles. May we take it, Lord, even unto us, that we would see the, 
the priority, Lord, that we would never, ever sin in putting deeds over the Word or even parallel to the Word, but that the Word would always be preeminent in our lives and in our ministries. But help us, Lord, never to leave the love and the deeds and the service outside of the ministry of the Word. Help us, Lord, to learn how to, how to serve and minister in the right balance of word and deed. And help us to see the great privilege, Lord, that we have as humans to share the words of this life to this dying world. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.